You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Jim Elvidge, my guest, for the full two hours, he is standing by to delve into digital consciousness theory. And Digital Consciousness is the title of his latest book. We'll kick around the idea of whether we are living in a simulated reality. Think the movie The Matrix, a computer simulation. Uh, Before that, let me introduce the boys in the band on the Flying V Gibson guitar. Our fine rockabilly friend, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. On the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, the... Very idiosyncratic, mysterious Albert Vinzel, and on the Hammond B3 live stream and YouTube channel producer Ryan. Uh, incidentally, no live YouTube stream tonight. The live YouTube streams will resume in January 2019. However, this uh, radio transmission will uh, be available on the YouTube channel in the next couple of days. And incidentally, we have renamed the YouTube channel. It's now called Strange Planet, after the website. So the YouTube channel is now Strange Planet, and you'll not only find all episodes of The Conspiracy Show there, but we're, we're also including my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited and The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. So again, the YouTube channel now called Strange Planet, and please check it out. Don't forget to like, share, and hit that red sub button. We're trying to get to 15,000 subs as fast as we can. All right. Hold on to your hats. We're about to explore a theory that may just explain the greatest mysteries known to man in one fell swoop. Who is God? What happens after we die? What the heck is quantum entanglement? Why did Dolly's braces disappear in the movie Moonraker? For all you James Bond fans out there, our reality is not what it appears to be. The latest physics experiments demonstrate that an objective reality doesn't exist. And no one truly knows what consciousness is or where the mind resides. Strange interconnectedness, anomalous events, and changing histories confound even the most open-minded of scientists. No single theory seems to be able to explain it all until now. 
Author Jim Elvidge holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He has applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies, entrepreneurial ventures, and leadership consulting. Beyond the high-tech realm, Jim has years of experience as a science researcher, keeping pace with the latest in the varied fields of quantum physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and metaphysical anomalies. This unique knowledge provides the foundation for his critically acclaimed 2008 book, The Universe Solved, which, for the first time, presented the astounding evidence that our reality may be under programmed control. And now, nearly 10 years later, scientists, technologists, and futurists all over the world are jumping on the simulation bandwagon, speculating that our reality is a digital simulation. Jim's research and theory, however, has continued well beyond the simulation hypothesis, and incorporated powerful ideas around consciousness, cultural synchronicities, quantum anomalies, and a true scientific foundation for digital consciousness theory. This true theory of everything is presented in his second book and highly anticipated Digital Consciousness. Jim Elvidge, climb on aboard. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm great. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, Really good to be back on the show and talking to you. And we're delighted to have you for the full two hours. Now, this idea of living in a computer simulation, a digital reality, uh, you're always quick to point out this is not your theory. In fact, this goes back hundreds of years, I think even as far back as René Descartes. How how could someone like Descartes living in the during the Renaissance be thinking about things like a a simulated reality? Oh, sure. I mean, this goes back further than that, thousands of years. Um, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave and uh, Eastern cultures, the concept of Maya, um, that reality is an illusion. So this is not a new idea that our reality is illusory in some way. It's just that now, um, you know, people have, have taken the current computer, uh, you know, uh, aspect of our society um, and and applied it in a different way. So I think Einstein once said there's maybe five new ideas every century or something like that. And, you know, this, this is another one where, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. There have been people who have been talking about um, all of these kinds of things for many, many years. And I think one of the areas where, you know, I might have added some uh, some clarity to it is the ability to connect the dots and to to say, you know what, if we look at all of these, strange experiences, these uh, scientific experiments that don't make sense, uh, these anomalous occurrences and things like that. Maybe there's a thread there, and that thread does seem to be that our reality is virtual and it's digital, and our consciousness is, uh, is separate from the brain. So you, if you put all those things together, you come to a conclusion that is really, really powerful in terms of how well it can explain things. So just uh, take us back to your first book, The Universe Solved, and you explore different categories of evidence that our reality is virtual and and programmatic i think is the the, the term you use so let's let's just delve into to some evidence that this reality is a simulation and then we'll talk about what that actually means sure um so there there are a lot of uh places that we can look so one thing to think about is if there is something like a simulation and uh you know, it would imply that there's something programmatic underneath that. It's hard to 
imagine a simulate a simulation in a continuous world uh, that isn't driven by some sort of logic in in a bigger system. So you know, if you if you if you have that, if you accept that idea, then um, what you need to look for is whether or not there's evidence that deep down our uh, our reality is digital. And there's a great deal of evidence for that, in fact. There's no evidence that it's continuous other than it just seems to look that way. So um, one example is in, in the scientific world. Um, physics breaks down at a certain point. So uh, we don't see, for example, uh, Hawking radiation or other kinds of frequencies, high-energy no- neutrinos above a certain level. And, the, and when... Uh, there's a, uh, a formula in, in physics where a frequency of something is inversely proportional to its wavelength. And the wavelength is going to have to do with, the, you know, sort of the granularity of reality and how atoms are moving about or subatomic particles or whatever the constituents of reality are. The level that they're moving about is going to be inversely proportional to the frequency. So if the frequency has a limit and, and we don't see anything above that limit, that tells you that there has to be a limit to the discreteness of reality. So, well, what does that mean? Okay, so it's discrete. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's programmatic. But then when you look at things like, um, you know, quantum entanglement or uh, the observer effect in a lot of quantum experiments, it's hard to come up with any kind of solution that explains those without the idea that there's a programmatic nature to reality. So just as one example, uh, Richard, um, I I like to use this one because I think it kind of clarifies things pretty well. Uh, Imagine you're playing in a uh, virtual reality uh, video game, and you come across a building. And the building has a door, but it has no windows. It has no way to get into the door. There's a keyhole, but you don't have a key. Does the system, the system being that game uh, construct itself, does it have to create what's inside the uh, the building. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to decorate it. It doesn't have to paint the walls. It doesn't have to do anything until somebody finds that key and opens the door. Right. It's, fact, like, a, it it's act, like a Potemkin really... village. It's like a Potemkin village. <laughs> uh, or, yeah, exactly. Right. There's just a storefront you can't see inside, so there is no inside. Sure. And, and it would be inefficient for it to do so because you don't know if anybody's ever going to discover that key. Um, you do, we don't know if anybody's going to cut into a tree or examine the contents of a cup of coffee under a microscope. So the, you know, what that means is if, if you're building a simulation to simulate a reality in this way, you're going to do it in an efficient way, which means that you're going to dynamically create the reality as it's needed. And that's exactly what seems to be happening in quantum experiments. It's only when people look um, and try to determine the position of something or some uh, attribute of that thing that it actually comes into existence. So reality seems to behave exactly the way we would create a simulation. So in other words, the the idea that the observer changes the behavior of that thing that is being observed, that is evidence of a digital simulation? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, there's a kind of a fine point there that uh, some people are talking about today. So... Um, it could be the conscious observer that the the reality gets sort of um, you know clarified for, or it could be the fact that we need to have consistency in that experiment. So, for example, if 
if th- there's a recording of the position of photons or something like that in an experiment, then the, just the very nature that the experiment is recording that forces it to come into existence, even without a conscious entity looking at it. So that I- idea of the observer effect is, is a little soft right now. People aren't really sure whether it means a conscious observer or whether it means um, that, that the system has to be kind of self-consistent. And on the other hand, some people talk about the idea of panpsychism, that consciousness is in everything. So maybe it's a moot point, if that's the case, um, that consciousness is everywhere. So that is what is causing reality to come into existence. All right, Jim, stay put. We'll reconnoiter on the other side. Digital consciousness. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, we will open up the phone lines at the top of the next hour. So just hold on to your dialing fingers. Just sit a spell and have a listen, and then we'll take questions and comments for Jim Elvidge. Are we living in a computer simulation? Back with more. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Jim Elvidge is with us. The book is Digital Consciousness. Are we living in the Matrix? So when I think about dreaming, uh, Jim, that's, that's, a type of sim- that's a type of simulation. Um, how does that differ than what you're talking about, or does yeah, it? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good question. Um, so, you know, there's one thing about sort of our apparent view of reality. We sort of feel like we're in this physical world, and that when we dream, we drop into a different level, right? Um, and, and I believe that that isn't quite the case. I think that the the deeper, more fundamental reality is uh, a place where you can experience all kinds of things. So when you go into a dream state, you may be in that reality. Um, So, for example, um, the difference between a dream and the physical reality, then, is the level of consensus. You know, essentially, in a dream, you're kind of brainstorming. You're thinking about things in a sort of a fantasy way. Your mind can go or your consciousness can go wherever it wants. But in the physical reality, it can't quite um, because it's constrained by the rules of our physical reality, the physics engine and, and the fact that other people are observing the same thing. So there's a difference in the reality that we appear to live in, and I believe that that is the simulation of sorts that is within the bigger system. That simulation um, makes us feel like we're in a hard and fast, physical reality. And the reason it does that is so that we take our learning seriously. I mean, imagine if we learned something from a dream or we had an experience with a dream. We'd wake up and say, huh, it was just a dream. You know, I'm not going to take that seriously, right? But when you experience something, uh, or you know, an interpersonal interaction or a lesson you've learned or something like that in the apparent physical reality, you do take it seriously. Why do we take that seriously? Why do we think that's realer than a dream? I think it's because there's this level of consensus that other people experience pretty much the same thing we do, even though 
deep down, we're all just having a subjective experience. All we're doing is taking, you know, data in and processing it and, and, and you know, interpreting it in different ways. And this has been shown in many exper- experiments that people remember things differently, they see things differently. Uh, so really what we what we know we're having is a subjective experience. It's just that it's so close consensus, it feels real. All right. That's fundamentally really the only difference between uh, dreams and uh, apparent physical reality. All right, so there are roughly 7.6 cognitive souls on this planet. So consciousness, uh, 7.5 or 7.5 billion conscious souls. What is consciousness then? Because if you can't simulate consciousness, then how could we be living in a simulated reality? Or is consciousness simulated? Yeah, and, and this is where we get into semantics, Richard. You know, the, the idea of consciousness, somebody may argue with something because of what they believe the word consciousness means. And it's actually very difficult to describe some of these things without pictures or without a uh, a model to look at. And that's one of the things that I tried to do in the book is make a very clear model that makes it, it obvious what we're talking about when we talk about the reality learning lab or the apparent virtual reality that we're in and, you know, the deeper system, all that there is and where our consciousness resides and things like that. So it's kind of a model for that. So I like to think of it this way. Think of all that exists being a big cloud of information that big cloud of information, that's some physical construct that is outside of our understanding. You know, when scientists look into a microscope or an electron microscope and they probe deeper in matter, they're only doing that in this, this one, um, you know, aspect of the program of the bigger system that has these rules to it. Outside of that, we have no idea what the reality is actually like. So... Um, you know, what's going on there? Well, I think that that whole system is just a big mass of consciousness. And all we are is like a sub cloud or a, a sub piece of it. You have your piece. I have my piece. And 7.6 billion people have a piece of that consciousness, which kind of explains why the mystics and, you know, ancient religions and spiritualism have often said we're all part of a whole and yet we're individual as well um that's perfectly aligned with this model so it's not just 7.6 billion instances of consciousness because there's dogs and cats and mosquitoes and gnats and all these other things that uh scientists are slowly coming to the realization that yes dolphins are conscious yes uh big apes are conscious yes canines are conscious You know, in fact, pretty much everything that's living is conscious. Actually, everything that's living, plant life is conscious. And, you know, it goes on and on. Um, Now, the sort of, you know, if you can kind of imagine, visualize the size of the cloud may be related to the level of consciousness that you have. So a gnat may have a very tiny little cloud that's sort of filling in the spaces in the bigger system. Um, So, so yeah, in that sense, we're all connected and, and, we are connected from that cloud of individuated consciousness to this reality learning lab, this virtual system that we're in that we call life. Um, but when we disconnect from that, i.e. when we die, we go back to the original place, and then we reincarnate. And that's another aspect of this theory that, that I you know, tend to believe in, because there's um, actual 
and a lot of strong anecdotal evidence for reincarnation. You know, people who have experienced past lives and can identify things in those lives that they later on go and find uh, actually exist or, you know, individuals who uh, had lived previously. Well, that so, certainly makes yeah, sense because in most video games, you know, we all have numerous lives, right? You can be, right, uh, right. you're given so many lives. But back to consciousness for a moment and the idea of um, cognition, there is this theory that it is computational, um, you know, that I guess, well, now we're talking about artificial artificial intelligence and, and uh, everything would be uh, reduced to an algorithm, an incredibly complex, infinitely complex algorithm. Um, I mean, well, how do you feel about this idea of computational consciousness? That it's just, if, if we're digital, we're a series of ones and zeros, why couldn't consciousness be an algorithm? Well, it is an algorithm. I mean, if you think about what an algorithm is, it's, it's uh, a logic flow, essentially. So our brains do work that way, and our consciousness appears to work that way. We go, if, then, else. You know, if, if this happens, I'm going to do that, or whatever. So we build up our uh, the rules of our algorithm over the experiences of our lives. We learn how to, you know, not touch a hot stove, for example. Um, so it is algorithmic, but the, the real fundamental question, I think, is where is free will in this? Right, right. It's, you know, you could say, okay, well, what's the difference then between an AI and a human that's also, you know, the AI is also following an algorithm. And I think there's a fundamental difference there. The AI is part of this virtual reality learning lab that we're in that we have constructed. Um, But the fundamental consciousness that you and I have is actually out there at a different level. So the question might be, you know, kind of an interesting question is, could our consciousness, since our consciousness apparently can occupy a template, uh, you know, a human template in a reincarnated way, every incarnation we pick a different human template, if, if our consciousness can do that, could it occupy an AI if the AI is sufficiently conscious? And I think it's possible. I, you know, I, I don't, uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't say no, but the important thing is sufficiently um, uh, complex or sufficiently, uh, uh, you know, have a sufficient substrate for us to be able to make use of that um, in, in the way that we would need to. And we're certainly not there yet. So, you know, the interesting thing, too, is if that ever happens, if, if a consciousness that has previously, say, incarnated into uh, humans or animals or whatever decides at some point, okay, I'm going to occupy this very advanced AI that uh, Microsoft has created uh, 20 years from now, um, the computer scientists will say, aha, see, we told you, sentience came out of this this AI, but that isn't really the case. Right, right. I mean, this would be, the, this is the transhumanist's wet dream, right? The idea of re-sleeving your consciousness so that you could be immortal. Right. And, and, and their thinking is grounded in the idea that we live in this deterministic, materialistic world that you know, that, that the real reality is what, you know, we apparently see, um, that it's physical and that, um, you know, as our algorithms become, uh, you know, more and more substantial, then we can sort of upload our consciousness into it. Uh, you know, I have a feeling that it's not going to be so simple. You know, it's, it's up to our real consciousness to decide whether it wants to get uploaded. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think that, you know, anybody who tries to do that experiment is going to have good results. But there is the possibility that it could happen, I think, 
um, far enough in the future only because it, it would have to be uh, far enough in the future that we would have sufficiently complex systems that it would make sense for us to occupy as a consciousness. You, you that mentioned make sense? Uh, yes, yes, and that <laughs> frightens me. <laughs> but the idea you mentioned spiritualism, and and I like to think of myself as, and many listeners, no doubt, too spiritual, uh, if not religious. And uh, this is my own bias. I mean, I'm an I'm an, an analog guy, and I know my young technical producer Ian. You know, he just brought in a couple of vintage old 1940 uh, 40s era Bakelite radios, which I, I just I was drooling over. They're fabulous. I'm an analog guy. I like vinyl. When I think of you know the digital world, I think of ones and zeros, and it it seems sterile to me. So reconcile. Uh, maybe I'm the one that needs to reconcile it, but just where is the room for spirituality in this digital sort of on-off holographic universe? Yeah, uh, we could probably spend uh, the rest of the evening talking about that question because that's that's sort of the fundamental question. Um, It's a good one. And and I love the analog stuff too. I like vinyl. I like um, old uh, analog radios. And, you know, the thing to remember here is that we have always thought that reality was discrete in some way. You know, the ancient Greeks talked about, you know, the idea of an atom. You know, it was indivisible. So atoms are a discrete unit that can't be broken down any further. So in that sense, you know, an an atom can be thought of as a digital thing. If it's there, it's a one. If it's not, it's a zero. You know, how does it behave? It behaves according to some rules that are quantized. They found in the early 1900s that, uh, particles behave in a very quantized fashion. So that still feels real digital. And yet the analog radios came out after the advent of quantum mechanics. So deep down, we're talking about a construct that's, um, that's probably not continuous because it would, you know, it, it require infinities, which is, you know, a, a ridiculous notion at its core. Um, but we don't notice that. I mean, you can have beauty in a rose and beauty in a movie and, and beauty in a thought and beauty in falling in love, all those kinds of things, and yet still have a discrete reality deep down. There's n- no conflict there. So we only think of ones and zeros as cold because we think of that laptop on our desk, you know, processing data in that way. But I'm talking about, you know, a much, much deeper level of this. And we really can't tell the difference um, until, you know, other than the categories of evidence that I'm talking about. In the... So where does the... Yeah, so, so I'm sorry uh, to go, interrupt, yes, no, you go. have a question about where does spiritualism come in? So uh, the idea of, you know, going somewhere when we die, um, having a purpose in life, that's not uh, in conflict with the idea of a digital reality deep down at all. In fact, it's it's uh, supported by that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that you could play out a simulation, you could learn from that simulation um, and then do another one uh, is very much in keeping with the idea of uh, reincarnation or, uh, or an afterlife and, and those kinds of things. So it's, it's not a conflict if you think about it in that way. It's just that, you know, the word digital, the idea of ones and zeros, it does seem cold and impersonal. Um, but when you think about it further... We do have layers of reality that are apparently analog and then discrete under that and analog and discrete under that. And what we see at the surface seems to be continuous. And that's 
really all that matters to our subjective experience. So this digital consciousness theory, uh, you, you believe that, that this is really the theory of everything. It can explain everything, all known scientific, metaphysical anomalies, what we call the paranormal, what we discuss in this program, all that can fit neatly into the DCT box. Is that right? Yeah, I, I do believe so. In fact, um, you know, I'm constantly coming uh, across interesting experiments or papers that are written. Whoops, sorry about the noise. Um, <laughs> Is someone breaking in, <laughs> Jim? Do we, do we need to call yeah, the authorities? No, everything's, everything's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I came across one uh, today where there was a study of multiple personality disorder. And uh, some, there was a case, there are a number of cases where the uh, person who has a personality that is a blind person, they found that their visual cortex actually turns off. So it's sort of uh, inactive during the time that that personality is in their, their body, if you will. Now, this doesn't make any sense. You know, how could, how could a brain flip back and forth between um, having the visual cortex turned on and being, you know, one normal personality, and then suddenly, like, deciding to turn it off. You know, nobody can consciously turn off their visual cortex. I'd never even thought so, of that. Right. But, and yet, that's perfectly explained by the digital consciousness idea of thinking of, you know, these individuated consciousnesses out there separate from our body, and for some reason, they're time-slicing the use of the body. Don't know why, can't explain that, but this is a perfect mechanism for explaining how that happens. All right, when we come back, we need to discuss who or what is programming this digital simulation. Jim Elvidge here discussing digital consciousness for the full two hours. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Do not go away. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back, and we will open up the phone lines at the top of the hour. Questions and comments for Jim Elvidge, Digital Consciousness, his latest. Um, so, let's talk about who is behind, or what is behind, uh, this simulation. Who, or what, is programming it? I mean, a, a religious person would say, well, that's an easy one. We see intelligent design everywhere. It's, it's God, or some super-consciousness, some super-intelligence. What's the big whoop? What say yeah, you? Uh, oh, sure. Go ahead. Sorry, Richard. No, no. I'm just going to say. So, so, what are your thoughts on on who who's who's programming it? Yeah, and and this is actually one of the areas where the my new book, my recent book, uh, has gone a lot further than the original book. Uh, and when we hear, uh, probably a lot of your listeners have read something uh, about the simulation theory. A lot of popular periodicals now have had articles about it. Are we living in a simulation? Uh, Elon Musk has even kind of jumped on that one. And, right. Nick Bostrom. Uh, a lot of, yep, a lot of Nick Bostrom, a lot of different scientists and so forth. And 
their view of the simulation theory is that we are the ones that are creating the simulation, and we've done it in the future. So we've reached some post-human stage where we have these sufficiently advanced systems, uh, and we go, we're going back and doing an ancestor simulation, and we, we live in one of those. That's, that's what that sort of traditional simulation theory is. But the problem with that, and this is where I think the power of my idea and the power of this book has come in, is I'm, I've, I've looked at all of these different ideas, Eastern philosophy, Abrahamic religions, uh, simulation theory, a la the Bostrom type, you know, other kinds of sort of theories of ev- everything, if you will, and ask the question, how many of these different anomalies do those things explain? And that simulation theory where we are the creators of the simulation, they don't explain things like near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, uh, precognition, or even some quantum mechanical experiments like the d- delayed choice quantum eraser. So you need something more than that. And that's why I've, I've gone beyond the idea of it's us in the future creating this or it's some other, uh, you know, agent, some intelligent agent, you know, a, a, a physics hacker from another universe or something like that. Um, those things just don't explain these other anomalies. The digital consciousness theory explains those, and what it is is the bigger system that is all consciousness, I call it all that there is, it's self-evolving. So it's driven by um, sort of a process of continuous improvement. It's trying things, experimenting with them, and not doing it in any kind of maybe even well-thought-out way. Um, It's, you know, you think of a, a system that, when it tries something and it evolves in a positive way, it keeps going in that way. If it evolves in a negative way, it tries something different, and it continues in that in that loop, essentially. So it could be that, that the system, and it appears to be that, you know, the system is doing this. Now, it's still possible that there's a higher-level construct, but it's beyond the human consciousness construct that could have, uh, you know, created all this. So, for example, Abrahamic religions do make some sense out of a near-death experience and a spiritual experience, but they don't really have anything to say about precognition or why a delayed-choice quantum eraser appears to be, you know, backdating some data. Um, however, the digital consciousness theory explains that really well. It okay. has to backdate it because reality is being, you know, generated. In Wait a minute, I've got to circle back here. Quantum eraser. I love that. When you talk about a quantum eraser, are you talking about the Mandela effect? Where I remember, no. This, this, no? Yeah, this is a different one. We and we should definitely talk about the Mandela effect too, because that's a that's a great one that I include in the book. Okay, so what pray tell is a quantum, quantum eraser? Yeah, that that was a it was a thought experiment uh, put forth, I think, by John Wheeler a long time ago, maybe seventies or eighties, um, and. We didn't have the equipment to actually run the experiment until more recently, uh, within the past 20 years. So um, what it does is, uh, if you're familiar with the double slit experiment, there's yes. a, uh, a light beam that's split into two paths, and they, uh, they go to, through two different slits. And then there's a screen on the other side where um, if the, if the uh, you know, if the, there's no way to tell which slit each photon goes through, you'll see an interference pattern. Um, but once you put a detector there to tell, okay, this the photon went 
you know, through slit A versus slit B, then that interference pattern disappears. And this has been a big mystery for many years. You know, how does it know? Um, That's what, you know, led to what's called the observer effect. Right. And sometimes it it behaves as 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 a wave and sometimes it's a particle. Yeah, exactly. Depending exactly. on and, how it's being observed. And, yep. And, and so some people have speculated, oh, well, it has to do with, you know, the problem of the detector. The detector is getting in the way of this. So Wheeler's idea was, well, what if we put the detector, we, we have a way to detect which path or which slit the photon went through after it hits the screen. So we, we don't actually even try to figure out which slit it went through. We learn that after the, the pattern is generated. And still, it follows the rule that once we realize, once we put that detector there after the screen, um, we, it, it uh, collapses the wave function and, it, and the interference pattern goes away. So it's almost like, um, you know, the pattern that you see on the screen the, the state of it, whether it's an interference pattern or not an interference pattern, depends on something that happens later on. So it's a very, it's, it's a very counterintuitive thing. It's a, almost a non-causal idea. Uh, something that happens later is influencing something in the past. So that's, that's the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. I forget when the first one was done, but um, each time that this experiment has been done, uh, the there are a number of loopholes that people are worried about, like, well, maybe uh, maybe there's some, uh, you know, some leakage, or maybe there's some communication that's less than the speed of light or something like that. And one by one, they've been closing these loopholes. And I think it was about three years ago that all of these loopholes were closed simultaneously. So it's now impossible to have any other explanation for this other than the fact that there is something uh, retrocausal, you know, uh, precognitive almost about uh, about this experiment. So that old saying the, that past is prologue is really true. Yeah, exactly. What does that mean about and, the nature and, of time in a, in a digital uh, universe? Uh, well, there's two ways to look at time. There's the time that we experience in our virtual reality that seems to kind of, you know, clock on, you know, chunk after chunk. Um, and then there's this uh, time in the, uh, you know, the deeper reality where, you know, people who have had near-death experiences or out-of-body or past lives or whatever, um, they report timelessness. I'm sure you've heard of this, this idea that there doesn't appear to be time. And I think, you know, and this is a little bit of speculation, certainly, um, but, it, but it appears like what's going on there is that when you're in that space, you're able to sort of run these simulations. Your consciousness is able to do several things at once, and so time disappears. Time is a construct of our virtual reality that we live in. Just the way the sync rate on your uh, laptop screen is a construct of that computer or the sync rate on a, on a TV, um, that's driven by the time in that system. So our apparent, what we call our apparent physical reality it has the, the notion of time, but there's something funny about it. As, as we look deeper and deeper, we find out that that time isn't perfect. Things like this delayed choice quantum eraser or, you know, precognition um, skills that some people actually seem to have tell us there's something different about time, that it's not, you know, exactly clocking along deterministically, cause and effect the way we think it is. 
Uh, we can speculate about why that is, and, and that's, you know, really an interesting kind of philosophical area. Um, but the science is showing that there is something, definitely something different than the, uh, you know, traditional view of time, for sure. Well, those of us who remember, you know, watching uh, videos, our VHS or our Betamax uh, players, and you would have to, you know, in real time, you would have to fast forward through a scene to get to the next scene. But in the digital universe... Again, linear. there is no linear time unless you choose to play something in linear time. You can access any moment on the DVD instantaneously. Uh, so is that, what, is that really what the underlying this illusion of linear time? Is that what, what time is really like? There is no past, present, and future? So, and I, and I think that's the deeper reality that we're talking about, that you are able to access different things. You're able to, say, play out different simulations. You've probably heard of people who have had these experiences where they're uh, driving along and they have this, um, you know, this sudden strong feeling that they shouldn't make a right turn. And they make a, and they don't make a right turn and, you know, a train goes by, you know, they would, would have uh, gotten to an accident with, or, you know, you know what I mean, something like that. Um, the skeptical view of this is, oh, well, there's some subconscious uh, data that they're receiving, you know, they're hearing a sound or they see something out of the corner of their eye or whatever. But there have been enough cases where. That Sorry, Jim. I got my apologies. I ran over time there. I, I've got to. Uh, sure. I've got to take a quick time out. We'll come back. I'm just so engrossed in this conversation, Ian. It's not my fault. We'll be back. More of the conspiracy show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Jim Elvidge is with us for the full two hours. We will open up the phone lines at the top of of the hour and take your questions and comments as we discuss living in a digital simulation. Um, now, where to go to next? Uh, oh, we were sort of in the midst of uh, a discussion and I got so sort of carried away. I ran over uh, the, uh, the the break time, but we um, what we were discussing now. Um, yeah, we, we were talking about the idea of uh, sort of um, looking ahead or running your own simulation. Right, and right. Uh, it, you know, I, I was. It, it reminded me of these cases where people have a real strong precognitive feeling about something. Like in some cases, it it, it you know it's impossible to say. Oh, they had some you know uh, sensory input that gave them an indication that this was going to happen. If you look at it logically, it's it, it just impossible. And yet these things do happen. So what could be going on here? Well, it's possible that your consciousness is playing a, you know, a little simulation game. You say, well, what happens if I drive down this road? What happens if I leave a minute later? What happens if this? And, uh, you know, based on that simulation, and, and that simulation being sort of tapping into, you know, what some people might call the Akashic record or whatever, um, you know, and running the simulations, it may make a decision to do something. And that decision is, is the, the, the system telling you, wait, put on the brakes, or do something different. Um, so it, it, it explains that. No, nothing else can really explain that, that effect, but this idea of 
you know, being able to run these kind of parallel simulations in a deeper reality does explain it very well. What about a glitch? Uh, I was watching uh, Cranford on DVD uh, last night, and I was right in the middle of a scene, and then all of a sudden, it skipped over a damaged area on the disc, and I thought, do I want to pop out the disc and rub some toothpaste on it? Because that does work, you know. If you clean a DVD <laughs> with uh, some toothpaste, uh, often, especially when you borrow them from the library, they get scratched and so forth. But anyway, uh, why don't I, let's say, you know, in this simulation, there is a glitch. Uh, now, I'm not likely to see a pop-up ad. You are living in a simulation. Click here for more information. But, I mean, are there glitches? Are people noticing glitches? Does Are these glitches explaining certain paranormal phenomena? Right. Okay, good. Uh, so let's talk about, again, the two different levels of reality. So there's the virtual reality that we're living in, this apparent physical, what we call our waking reality. Um and could there be a glitch there? There could be, it, it, but I think that if there is, it's designed into the system. Um, is there a glitch in the deeper reality? Probably not, because I would think that the system having evolved to be, you know, fundamentally better and better over, over time, uh, is probably not going to, to have that kind of glitch. But the glitches that happen in our apparent physical reality, those are the ones that we care about because those are the ones that we experience. And something Mandela effect might be one of those, or some people, you know, point to deja vu as one. Um, so are they really glitches? Is it something going wrong? Well, you have to ask the question, what does it mean to be wrong? You know, maybe it's intentional. Maybe, you know, we're supposed to be able to uh, recall things you know, important things or even random things that we think we've experienced before for some reason. Um, or this, the Mandela effect couldn't, might, be, might not be wrong. It might be the way the system is letting us know that a deeper reality exists. Right, I'm we just, should explain I'm definitely the... speculating here, but, sure. you know, the, the, the theory um, allows for these possibilities but the question is, you know, what's the reason behind it? And that's pretty hard to answer. So we should just take a moment because I, I would like to drill down a little further on the Mandela effect because it's a fabulous topic. And, and that the idea is it's named after Nelson Mandela. And when he died, and of course, state funeral and everything, uh, uh, there were a lot of people, probably, I don't, know, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people around the world who said, wait a minute, Nelson Mandela died today? I remember three years ago or whatever the date was. I remember that. I remember him dying then. And then people started wondering about whether they were misremembering other things, like is it the Berenstein Bears? Is it spelled that popular children's cartoon? Is it mm -hmm. spelled one way or is it spelled the other way? Is it Oscar Mayer Wieners, M-E-Y-E-R, or is it M-A-Y-E-R? Uh, does the, the F in Ford, as in the Ford Motor Company, have a little curly Q uh, or not? Uh, J.C. Penny, is it spelled with an E at the end before the Y? And so on and so forth. Now people are wondering, wait a minute, I remember it one way, but everyone else remembers it another way. That's the Mandela effect. So the Mandela effect, you say, might be a way that the system is doing what exactly? Well, yeah, so let's, let's talk a little bit about these. So memories are known to be fallible. People... You know, people don't necessarily remember things the right way. I remember uh, taking a class at school where the professor was talking about an experiment he did. I mean, they would never do these today, but uh, he came into class and he had somebody come in with a gun that had blanks in it and shoot him, and he fell down. And, you know, of course, the, the student body just kind of went, 
you know, crazy. But but before they ran out of the classroom, he said, wait, um, now I want everybody to write down exactly what happened. And some people wrote down there was no gun. Some people wrote down the professor shot first. Some people wrote down, you know, somebody else came in or two people came in. And, and in fact, like under conditions of extreme stress, memories are terrible. In addition to which, when we remember something, we don't remember it as it originally occurred. It's impossible. What we remember is how it's been stored in our memory. So we remember the last time we remember it, ah, which right, means right. that if, uh, let's take, for example, one, one of your cases, um, let's take the Mandela effect, Nelson Mandela. If somebody heard something about Nelson Mandela having died in prison, then when they think about that, they may recall that experience, you know, the time that they heard about this. It could have been an erroneous news report or a rumor that somebody uh, sent around, and it could be kind of infectious in that way. So that's one possibility for it, and it's a very, uh, you know, mundane kind of uh, answer to this. Right, right. But then there's another one, like the Berenstein Bears, uh, that's certainly one, and the, the one that I like the best is... Uh, yeah, you've watched some of those old James Bond movies, right? Yes, yes. Moonraker. Uh, do you remember uh, Moonraker when uh, yeah. Jaws was in that movie? Mm-hmm. The villain, R- Richard right. Richard Keel. That's right. Yeah, Richard Keel was the actor, and he had a big mouthful of metal, and he would bite people, and that was you know, kind of his, his uh, evil side. Well, in one scene in the movie, he crashes in a cable car, and then there's this blonde woman with pigtails who pulls him out of the rubble, and... He looks at her, and she smiles, and she has a mouthful of braces, and he smiles, and he's got a mouthful of metal, and the two of them fall in love, and they walk off hand in hand, and the music swells and all that kind of thing. Well, if you look at that movie now, you rent the DVD or download the, the movie, she doesn't have braces. Hmm. So how did people start remembering the braces? Did you remember her having braces? I remember her having braces, and most people that I talk to about it are almost certain that she had braces. And if she didn't, why did they make that connection in the movie? Right, Uh, yeah, and and that's, I think that's my point about why this one's interesting, is that why would they even have that scene in the movie? What's what's the whole point of that scene if there isn't some sort of connection between the two of them? And that was obviously what the connection was. So it it doesn't even make any sense anymore. When you watch the movie now, you're like, well, I don't get why they're, you know, smiling at each other and falling in love. Um, But then it it made total sense. So that does feel like something changed. In the digital consciousness model, it could have changed. All those artifacts could have been rewritten and we'd be none the wiser. Um, What's our memory then? Our memory is uh, sort of, you think of it as a, a storage of things that we've experienced. It's possible that the other artifacts in our reality uh, were replaced or changed, but not the ones in our memory. And think of that as like a little database that's over here somewhere. And for some reason, those don't get replaced and the others do. It explains the the anomaly very clearly, um, but I can't tell you why that would happen. Um, I, I'm just thinking that maybe it seems like there are a lot of things that happen that that lead us to speculate about the deeper reality. And it's almost like the system, uh, the big, more fundamental system, you might want to call it God, all that there is, whatever, wants us to question, wants us to evolve, uh, wants us to think that we're not in a 
you know, super deterministic reality where we're just kind of going along for the ride and don't have free will. You know, so it's important in our learning experience that we have mysteries to solve and things to to learn from and evolve from. And I think maybe that's all it is. Or is it possible, Jim, that it's all a clever deception, not everything, but uh, who is ever responsible for the simulation? You know, the, the idea... I, you know, that Alex Jones is, is sort of branded himself the, the uh, um, prison planet, that we are living on a prison planet, which is sort of the Gnostic version uh, that, uh, you know, we are trapped here on this prison planet. We are, we are under the control of these, I, I believe they call them archons. And once in a while, some avatar, uh, Jesus, Buddha, whomever, appears to mankind and says, wake up, wake up. You're living in a simulation. This isn't real. Let me show you the, the path to... To, to truth. Maybe we can uh, we can delve into that on the other side. And, sure. And yeah, great. We'll open up the phone lines as well. 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room. With the wood paneling, the shag carpeting, and the lava lamp, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big how-do to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. 740 megahertz on the amplitude modulation band, 96.7 on the frequency modulation band here in Toronto, the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. Hi to everyone checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Hi to those who listen and watch on the Strange Planet YouTube channel. Uh, reminder once again, no live stream tonight, uh, but the audio will be posted in the next few days. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Jim Elvidge, uh stays with us. Are we living in a computer simulation? The Matrix, and his new book, Digital Consciousness. How do we get a hold of the book, Jim? Uh, the book's available all over the place. So uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other online resellers. Um, it may be in various stores, depending on whether or not they want to carry it. But uh, certainly in those uh, retail outlets like Waterstones or Barnes & Noble, you can go in and order it from them. That They have it in their database. There's a Kindle version, and there's a paperback version, and... Uh, uh, not a Kindle version, an uh, ebook version. So uh, the Kindle on Amazon and uh, ebook on other other places. So uh, available everywhere. All right, terrific. Now, before the break, before the uh, the top of the hour, we were talking about what if we are living in 
The Matrix. Now, in the movie, of course, it's it's a deception, right? And it to me, that movie is uh, sort of parallels sort of the whole Gnostic tradition uh, that we are living on this prison planet. Uh, occasionally, these avatars uh, break through, come into our reality to, to wake us up. And um, the idea is that we are being manipulated. Uh, and our on our energy, our emotions, and so so forth provide energy to these to the, the people that are running this simulation uh, in the Gnostic tradition. I believe they're called archons. Um, I mean, maybe that's what's happening. What, what, what do you think of that that uh, philosophy? Well, I, I think one thing about this, Richard, is we you know need to talk a little bit about semantics. So when we talk about the word prison planet, believe it or not, I'm not going to disparage the idea. Um, one person's prison is another person's utopia, perhaps. You know, the, you know, I've I've read some some accounts of people who have had near death experiences or out of body experiences where uh, they've encountered entities that really want to have the human experience but never really got the chance to. In other words, the the, the consciousness, the individuated consciousness that's out here, um, there may be some that aren't. Uh, incarnating um, into a human experience, they're just doing something else in the you know purpose of raising the overall consciousness of all that there is. So, in a sense, for those of us who are constantly inca- reincarnating, um, maybe it feels like a prison to some, and maybe while we're here, we think, "Well, I don't want to do that. I want to uh, reach nirvana, and I want to you know be one with God, or something like that." Why do I have to keep on coming back here uh, and doing, you know, living living this this reality? Um, but apparently, what happens is in between lives, you realize, oh, I need to learn something else. I need to learn patience, or I need to learn, uh, you know, some some other lesson. So I would really like to reincarnate. Now, once you're back in the system you may think differently uh, because of what you've chosen, but it's all a learning experience. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. So what are the archons? What are, what, you mentioned Jesus or, or the, some spirit guides. Um, I, there, there does seem to be some, some anecdotal data, some significant anecdotal data, that people at times have a kind of a, a kick in the butt, like a, a, you know, a religious experience or a spiritual experience where they realize they're doing something wrong or they, they have to change things. And maybe that is another consciousness kind of an in, injecting some, uh, you know, a little bit of force to push them in a, in a certain direction. So, you know, I don't, I don't dismiss the idea of, uh, you know, of these, of these things, uh, spirit guides or archons or whatever you want to call them, the question is only, you know, what is their intent? And so I think some people have this idea that, oh, we're in, in a prison, there's evil malintent behind it, like in the Matrix movie. But again, there's not evidence to support that. The, the evidence seems to be counter to that. When people have a spiritual existence, it's a beautiful, wonderful um, or a spiritual experience. It's a beautiful thing. You know, it's even when you meditate, and I've reached a level of meditation before where, uh, and I've, I've since lost it, I'm I, not as good at meditating as I used to be, but in the past, as soon as I would start meditating, I would feel like this amazing connection to things and, and, and feel, you know, really good. And it, so 
by and large, I'm just going to throw a number out there, 99% of those who have experienced the truer reality have experienced it in a positive way, not in a in a negative way. Oh, but now, there are some exceptions, but I think the exceptions have a lot to do with your expectations and maybe part of your learning process. But, but I guess that's the that's the, the, the point of, for example, uh, Jesus or uh, Buddha coming here and, you know, trying to wake us up is that, that we get that glimpse, that transcendental glimpse uh, that is not rooted in this reality it's it's you know through meditation or uh you know raising our consciousness however you want to term uh, or to talk about it it's that's the key to escaping this prison planet uh and and that 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 overwhelming sense of peace is is to be is only to be found um you know, by accessing these higher realms of consciousness, but but not here on Earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, the 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 idea that they're coming here to try to wake us up. I, again, I don't feel that there's any evidence for that. And when I say evidence, I'm talking about sort of anecdotal information from people who have had real experiences in a deeper level of reality, not people who are running you know, a radio show that just, you know, think everything is evil behind it. Now, does, is, does evil exist? We'd have to ex- examine the nature of that world, word. Uh, free will exists. Do people do things to harm other people? Absolutely, um, because they have free will. Maybe they learn from that. Maybe in the life review at the end of their life, they uh, feel the pain of having to do that. That seems to be the case. And so they, they do learn either through their experiences in this life or through their experience in reviewing this life, um, they, they learn to uh, evolve their consciousness a little bit. So uh, the fact that there's evil in the world doesn't prove that there's evil intent behind the reality. Right. It just, it, it, it just says that, that we have free will and that we're put in a situation where we feel like we have to compete for resources. We have to compete for jobs, compete for food, compete for money. And all those things that drive us in, in that reality do drive a lot of uh, evil doing. It drives a lot of wars. Um, and, you know, I mean, imagine if there was infinite uh, places to live. Would we need wars? No. You know, if, if, if the, if the idea of war has to do a lot with, uh, you know, regions and, and uh, living space or uh, you're, not, you're not believing what I believe and things like that. But if we realize that we are really all connected and that the true reality is a, a deeper reality, there, we realize there's no need for wars. Um, just getting back to the, the idea of reincarnation. So does the reincarnation philosophy, does that, does that mesh best with the digital consciousness theory? Uh, or, or, or why not, for example, you live once, you die, you're judged, uh, and you'll have eternal life on another plane of existence? Um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be any indication that that happens. Uh, so there are a couple examples of uh, where, or there are a lot of examples. Uh, Ian Stevenson was one who did a lot of research. He researched uh, thousands of cases of people feeling that they uh, had a past life. Then psychologists like Brian Green and or Brian uh, Weiss and others have uh, encountered patients who have experienced previous lives. Well, 
you could you could argue the skeptical might the skeptical person might argue that they're just uh, you know fantasizing something or coming up with it um, you know like they might in a dream. But when people have certain artifacts that they remember, like well, I was in this town in uh, in Ireland, even though I've never been there, and I remember this this thing here and and so forth. Um, even then, the skeptics will say, well, they saw that in a movie or they you know they heard a story, but. When you talk to children who have never uh, experienced these kind of things, they've never had the, uh, the, the media exposure or the number of stories told to them. And there are a lot of cases of children who, and in fact, children tend to remember their previous lives more than adults do. We get it sort of kind of forced out of this from a logical standpoint, you know, no, that doesn't exist. So we tend to not believe it, but children are kind of open to those kinds of things. And so you can't explain that with children. If they remember something like uh, this boy, James Lenninger, I think his name was, yes. remember being a fighter pilot in World War II, he remembered the names of his, uh, his colleagues, he remembered the name of the aircraft carrier, remembered Iwo Jima, where it was, and everything he remembered, you know, was actually uh, something that really happened. So, you know, the fact, th- th- there is evidence this is actual real evidence for the uh, the idea of reincarnation um, what about other uh, we, we talked about reincarnation we talked about uh, you know well what happens specifically you mentioned the life between lives uh, what happens when we die physical death uh, is it just a waveform that collapses um, to live again? What happens to that consciousness? What does sure. digital so, consciousness theory tell us about that? Yeah, so here's, here's how uh, I, I see this. And, and again, all of these ideas, uh, they, they come from thousands of years of similar thinking. They come from other researchers. They come from exper- scientific experiments. They come from anecdotal data, all of that evidence. Um, leads to this conclusion, and I think here's what happens. Um, I mentioned that our reality learning lab is sort of a subsystem. Our real consciousness is a is like a bubble or a mini cloud out there in all that there is, and it's connected to our vehicle, our avatar, if you will, in this uh, virtual reality that we're living in. When we die, that connection is broken. Now, where does the data go? We've there, there's some information that we've recalled from this light, this life. Um, I think that's stored in what you might call an Akashic record. I think there's, you know, probably evidence seems to support that everything that ever happens um, is stored somewhere. However, when we reincarnate, we don't normally get connected to that information. We, that's wiped clean. But we do retain the values and the learnings that we got from the previous time. So, um, you know, you think about the connection is broken, we lose all of the mundane data about the previous life, and, and that's important because when we do reincarnate, we have to think that this is a physical reality because that's why we have, uh, that's what's going to drive us to believe in the learnings that we're getting. Um, so that data is gone, but why do we perform differently in this life? You know, why do we have the, uh, the nature that we have? That's because our soul, our consciousness, the values that we, the things that we've learned, does retain as we go from from life to life. So I think that's kind of what happens. Um, you know, another example that that this explains really well is the nature versus nurture argument. 
there are characteristics of people who are uh, identical twins. So they have identical DNA, identical uh, uh, upbringing and environment at the same time. What would explain one person having a, uh, you know, a sexual orientation that's different from the other person or, you know, having a proclivity to commit crimes and the other person doesn't, you know, and we, we see this all the time. There are some things that seem to be genetic. And when you think about it, they're, it's logical that they're genetic. But what explains these that are different? The, the answer is the fact that it's a different soul. All right, Jim, I got to you take know, a time out. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side. Jim Elvidge, Digital Consciousness, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Jim Elvich stays with us. The book is Digital Consciousness, and we're discussing whether we may may be living in a digital simulation, a computer simulation, like The Matrix. Um, now, we, you were talking about um, identical twins and, and uh, nature versus nurture and how, um, you know, differences may be explained by the fact that they are, um, uh, you know, different souls or... Just um, pick up where we left off there, Jim. You would, you, sure, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great area to, to discuss, Richard. Um, people, I'm, I'm sure you've known people who, who say, gee, my kids are just so completely different from each other. You know, from from day one, you know, as, 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 as babies, they were different. Uh, it happens all the time. And so when they do these experiments, they they'll they'll test something like some attribute of somebody you know a value perhaps you know honesty or something um and they'll 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 do tests for identical twins and fraternal twins um or between strangers so the fraternal the difference in results between fraternal twins and identical twins will parse out you know some of the genetic uh uh some of the nature side of the the connection so they'll be able to determine, you know, scientists have done this, they're able to determine, well, this particular kind of trait uh, seems to be related to genetics, whereas this particular kind of trait seems to be more related to environment. But there are some traits that seem to be related to neither. And, uh, you know, so my argument there is that it's because we are different souls. We have a different soul history. We have a different history of all the incarnations that we've had, and therefore the learnings that we've had uh, over the you know the instances of those reincarnations so as a result we are going to behave differently we will have different attributes and different values and things like that so it makes sense to me uh in in that way but it's really hard to explain it when you have identical twins who uh who 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 differ drastically you know and, and one common area to that has been researched is you know the proclivity for um sexual orientation you know, some of the, some, there's some thinking that it's possible that your most recent incarnation was 
the opposite sex. So that's why you have may, may have more of a tendency uh, toward that orientation than others. Um, that also makes sense, but it doesn't make sense without the, the idea of uh, reincarnation. Right, right. Um, other paranormal, um, paranormal activity that can be explained by this DCT, digital consciousness theory. So let's talk about, for example, ghosts. Uh, when you see a full-on apparition of someone who has been dead for a hundred years and they're coming down the spiral staircase and they come down that spiral staircase every Friday night at midnight wearing a top hat and, uh, you know, tails and so forth. Um, how does DCT explain paranormal activity like that? Yeah, sure. Um, so ghosts isn't something that I've done a whole lot of research on, but to me, it just kind of falls in the category of things that that uh, aren't in the normal uh, set of artifacts in our reality. So, for example, we see cars, we see uh, you know clouds and sun, and you know all the things that everybody uh, sees, and it follows the rules of physics and follows you know all the normal rules of our reality. But then every once in a while, we see something different whether it's uh, cryptozoology or UFOs or ghosts or something like that. And, but if you, if you think about it, let's take as an analogy the, um, the, uh, a virtual reality uh, computer game that you might be playing. Let's say that um, you, it has, those games also have physics engines, and so everything is going to work according to that physics engine. When somebody, when somebody dies, when another player dies in that virtual reality, they're gone for good. You don't see them again. But there's nothing preventing the programmer of that reality to create a ghost. It's just that it's not, you know, part of our normal experience. That's why we use the word paranormal. It's something outside of normal experience. But it doesn't mean that it can't exist. Just because it doesn't follow the rules of physics, like in the Matrix, again, you know, remember they were they were breaking the, the rules all the time. Uh, just because the rules can be broken in some cases doesn't, doesn't mean that it can't exist. It just means that our normal reality is following these rules and the paranormal stuff is not. But it's all playing out in the same system. Okay, so it's an artifact, but does that... Does that preclude the the existence of actual ghosts? No, no, it doesn't. And so you might ask the question, what's the ghost? Well, you know, maybe the ghost is just a, a little... In a, honestly, I hate to use the computer analogies too much because it, again, feels like we're fitting this theory into something that can run on a laptop. Um, and so I don't even use the word computer simulation. It's, it's a much more complex reality, I'm sure, that we live in. But, 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 but keeping with that analogy, you know, imagine that, you know, somebody dies and there's a little instantiation of a program that says, we're going to take the likeness of that person, make them transparent, somewhat transparent to anybody who sees them, and put them in this house that they used to live in to appear every night at midnight. There's, there's nothing difficult about programming that. It's, it's, a, it's a very you know, simple thing to do if you think about it. So the fact that they exist kind of implies that we do have you know, a programmatic nature to our reality. 
who did it and why, that I can't say. You know, I, I, I do kind of speculate about some things, but you know, I'm trying to be pretty careful in the book and in, in my blogs and the things that I talk about to speculate too much. You know, I want things to be grounded more in evidence um, and sort of statistics and uh, so forth than, than just speculation. But the speculation stuff is really fun, too. And, you know, when, when I do approach something like that in the book or during an interview like this, I like to make it clear that we're just speculating at that point. What about the existence of, of, of hyperdimensions? Theoretical physicists talk about, I think, up to 12 hyperdimensions, or maybe they're on to even more now. Uh, do hyperdimensions, are they problematic for a digital, a digital simulation? Because the, the existence of these hyperdimensions might, in fact, explain things like ghosts or uh, encounters mm-hmm. with UFOs and aliens. Yeah, and, and it's all, uh, again, it's all semantics, I think. So uh, it, it, the, there are a lot of ways to look at dimensions. What does it mean to be a, a different dimension? It just means that there's a different attribute that's, that's uh, being varied uh, instead of the, the normal ones. So I could very easily um, program into a, a system simultaneous threads of uh, reality going on at the same time. And some people might connect to one, and some people might might connect to the other, or maybe the, you know, the thread in the, you know, x plus one dimension is where the mysterious stuff, where the dark matter is, and where the the ghosts are, and 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 so forth, and it bleeds through into the other. Again, that that's all all very possible. So when we talk about dimensions, it's it's a real difficult thing to talk about because everybody uses that word dimension or multi-dimension differently. Um, a mathematical person might use it in a mathematical way. You know, there are things like four-dimensional space, five-dimensional space, and so forth. And you just, you know, write equations to explain what's going on in these different dimensions in space. You know, somebody who's uh, a physicist may talk about, especially if they're a quantum physicist, they might talk about something called Hilbert space, which is where the multi-dimensional or multi-world theory, the many-worlds theory, comes into place. That's one of the solutions to some of the quantum mechanics anomalies, that every time something happens at a quantum level, actually both things happen and the whole new universe is forked off. But according to that theory, you can't go from one universe to the other. So if you believe in that, then you can't preclude, or you know, that kind of precludes some of the uh, spillover things that we talk about. String theory um, talks about uh, physical dimensions, um, which is much like the mathematical dimensions. In the programmed reality, I could say every every simulation is like a, a dimension. Um, in some massively multiplayer online role-playing games, they have different servers that um, different characters uh, um, interact on. So when you first connect up and create your account, you're on one server, so you're always seeing the same people. But there's, and that's because that server can only handle 2,000 people, for example. Um, it's not infinitely scalable, so they have different servers with different groups of people. You could think of each server as a different, as um, a, you know, that the, the the server dimension, if you will. Uh, so running um, instances of processes and things like that could also be considered another dimension. Uh, all of this makes total sense in the in the uh, digital consciousness world. Um, 
and and people that have that have had uh, encounters, experiencers with with aliens, people who believe they've been abducted uh, by aliens. How could that be explained by digital consciousness theory? Yeah, that's just their subconscious or, or their uh, subjective experience, uh, Richard. So it's you, you know all we know for sure is what experiences we've had. These people are having an experience that seems to be different than what the average person has. It doesn't say they're not really having that experience. Now, there's certainly some people who are going to lie about things for one reason or another, but I think when you start to add up all of the evidence, you know, all the corroborating evidence of, uh, of uh, for example, UFO sightings, you know, you have to acknowledge that there's something else going on in there. And it's those, those things, those artifacts, those, uh, you know, the UFOs or the cryptids or whatever, those are falling into the category of, quote, non-normal experiences that aren't following the standard, um, you know, rules engine that, that we have in our normal day-to-day life. Now, maybe as time goes on, uh, one of those, you know, we, we say, okay, well, enough people have seen it. We're going to accept that that thing exists, and we're going to try to do some scientific investigation and figure out why. And now it becomes part of the, you know, what we generally consider of as normal. One example of that is back in the 1800s, people used to think that meteors didn't exist. And there were all these stories of, oh, there was a rock that fell out of the sky. And the scientists would say, no, it's impossible. You know, that's, that, that, that couldn't happen. These people are crazy. They're, you know, it's pseudoscience. They're, they're not thinking right, et cetera, et cetera. So that was, at that time, paranormal. But once a real explanation was created for it, now it became part of the normal set of artifacts in our reality. I mean, but there are rules, right? There are laws um, of, of physics, for example, or are they? Are there? Is it simply a case that anything goes as long as the programmers decide that, that that's what they want to program? Uh, it could be. Yeah, I, I think there are laws and rules that are pretty solid. And I say pretty because it's, it's like this consensus spectrum. When you dream... You're, it's a consensus of one. When you're in a reality, it's a consensus of many. And somewhere in the middle, if you're having a mutual lucid dream or uh, an OBE where you're experiencing somebody else and you're both experiencing the same thing, these things have happened as sort of a middle consensus. So way at the uh, you know high consensus side of the spectrum is the stuff that we experience day to day. And those are the rules that you're talking about. They seem to exist, but they are soft. As the quantum mechanics experiments show, things don't exist until they need to come into existence. And that has been proven. As much as I don't like to use the word proven, we're talking about, you know, 80 orders of magnitude of certainty um, that objective reality doesn't exist, uh, according to scientists. So that's a, that's a fundamental paradigm shift for most people to realize that the thing that they feel like is most solid out there that they trust doesn't really exist as they think it does. It comes into existence when it needs to. All right, we'll uh, take another final or uh, take another time out and uh, come back and uh, discuss uh, well, much to discuss. I'd like to know when did this simulation begin? I mean, can we actually determine when we sort of went online? We'll also keep the phone lines open if you have questions or comments, surely, 
Surely you must. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Jim Elvidge. The book is Digital Consciousness, and uh, we'll take a phone call. William is in Toronto. William, welcome aboard. I uh, find what your guest is very interesting, and I can uh, understand uh comprehend what he's what he's talking and relate to it uh, uh, however if uh people were to talk about this among themselves or to anyone else they'd be considered mentally unstable the way things are in society today and no one talks about it excellent point uh <laughs> jim what do you say to that <laughs> yeah i think it's true and it's it's very unfortunate i think there's there's this uh fear in society of of something that upsets our sense of order or what we've ever learned. It's why people hold on to things so much. I think humans by nature are fear averse um, or change averse. And uh, as a result, they, you know, think that anything outside of the norm is, is crazy. But um, a lot of great scientists over the years uh, were considered crazy. Like um, you've heard of Ohm's law in electronics, uh, Georg Ohm, when he uh, developed his theory back in the 1800s, he was considered a, a scientific charlatan. He was, um, you know, I think he lost his teaching job. And it wasn't until 30 years later that his idea was shown to be true. Uh, the same with the first person who thought that cave art was, um, you know, as uh, old as it was, 30,000 years old. And others over the year, Franz Zwicky, uh, who developed the theory of dark matter in the in the 30s or 40s, was considered a nut. So anything that's different from the mainstream, unfortunately, is looked at uh, that way. Now, they, I think there are definitely, unfortunately, there are some crazy ideas out there that don't have any scientific basis. And so those tend to poison the well for the rest of the ideas that are based on logic and science. And I'm, I'm trying in this book to be as scientific as possible. And I'm not saying this is pure science. Uh, it doesn't have to be pure science. It could be philosophy. I don't care what we call it. However, you know, the, the criteria that people usually apply to science, testable, falsifiable, observable, predictable, repeatable, those kinds of things, there's an awful lot of scientific theories don't, that don't meet those criteria. String theory doesn't. Many worlds theory doesn't. Um, actually, uh, the Big Bang theory doesn't meet all of those. And my theory comes pretty close to meeting all of those. So, you know, you could call it scientific or not scientific or whatever. It's, it's kind of semantics, I suppose. Um, and it is unfortunate that people do have a, a bias against things that are different. And I agree with your caller that that's the case. What changes if uh, if we are living in a 
digital simulation or we're not living in a digital simulation, how does that change our lives? Why does it matter? Um, the, you know, that's sort of the ultimate question, I think. You, know, you can say, so what? You know, so, you know, so what that, that we reincarnate or that things are digital deep down or that our consciousness is separate. But if you think about it, it really does change your, the way you may behave. So, for example, we spend all of this money on life extension. But if we realize there's an afterlife, then we don't need to spend all that money on life extension. We don't need to try to extend it beyond the point of its natural extension. In fact, spend that money on curing disease instead. Um, or just think about the whole idea of, uh, of our purpose. If we're really all connected, and if all consciousnesses are, are connected as it seems to be, then we will probably treat other people with more generosity and respect. We'll treat other animals with more generosity and respect. Um, and again, we realize that if we're not really in competition for resources, then wars don't even make sense anymore. Imagine what we could do in the United States with, uh, you know, with, you know, to recover the, the amount of money that we spend on wars if everybody realized that we don't have to compete for resources. Uh, let's, um, work, uh, let's work a, a quick call in here before the break. Michael is in Toronto. Sure. Michael, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thank you. And uh, hello, Richard. Hello, Jim. Um, Hi, Michael. You're, uh, <laughs> thank God cannabis is legal. <laughs> you guys are hitting on some pretty heavy stuff. Um, <laughs> but you, you're, you're bringing into focus uh, a lot of things in my belief set, and it all has to do with, with energy. And uh, you talk about reincarnation, and, and I think clarification is needed because people tend to think of reincarnation that we come back in the human body that we are now, which we don't. It's, it's the energy that comes back in different forms. And, and you, you've hit so many, so many things. And, and, and you know, it certainly, uh, my, I, I respect everybody's belief set, but it does get into an issue of, uh, you know, uh, the high, higher power and the belief as opposed to a lot of how man-made religions present the higher power. And uh, it's just so interesting that um, uh, I just have to say one thing is that I recently uh, had a heart condition, and uh, um, in the end, uh, my cardiologist, uh, I didn't realize that the heart functions on elect- electricity. And uh, I, they actually gave me, it was a small procedure, Sunnybrook Hospital, but uh, the... Uh, the shock treatment brought my uh, you know, the heart's divided into four ventricles. It brought the one that was uh, not functioning properly back functioning properly. And so uh, energy and electricity, I mean, we just exist that way. Well, we are truly yeah, electrical, and, electrical beings, yes. Sure, and you use the, the word uh, energy for, for what reincarnates, and I, I like that. And I think that kind of underlies why we why it's so important to agree on a lexicon you know we talk about different words if i say the word simulation it's going to mean something completely different to almost everybody who's listening out there if we yeah. use the word energy it means something different if we, we use the word soul that probably means something different well i kind well, of equate you know, what well, if, if you talk about soul uh, and and you're a science a scientist and, and i mean it is proven that when the body the human body dies that their their the soul as we know it which is energy actually leaves the body and they've measured it and uh and uh unfortunately the previous gentleman uh, brought up the point i mean you're i i don't want to use the for your average individual but <laughs> it's a pretty heavy topic for most people to accept 
All right, yeah, Mike. I agree. It is. All right, Michael. Thank, thank you. you for the call. Some great points. We'll uh, we'll take a time out. Come back. Take some more calls and delve further into digital consciousness. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Jim Elvidge stays with us, and uh, one segment remains here. Uh, in the, um, I'm not sure if it, it's t- Tibetan monks who uh, who believed in this idea of manifestations of the mind. They called them tulpas, and they could create, uh, well, manifestations. For example, monsters and all sorts of hideous creatures and so forth. Is is that sort of the idea of what we're talking about in a, in in a, in 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 a microcosm that 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 the simulation is really a manifestation of the collective mind. Uh, yeah, in, in a way, I, I think the manifestation of uh, the tulpas, as you, as you describe, is maybe an extreme form of that. But creating your own reality, if, if we realize that our reality is soft, as it appears to be, and again, as the physics experiments seem to show, then we are able to influence it. So the question is, could I influence it drastically. Could I convince myself that I can walk through a wall? Probably not. Can I convince myself that my cancer will go away? Um, maybe if it's just starting, I can't because there's enough time for that, that, con- that convincing to work, the, the consciousness to uh, have an effect. So there's been a lot written about the power of positive thinking and the power of visualization, the placebo effect and things like this. These are real, real effects. And it's, it's because our thinking, our uh, consciousness, our intent actually does change what happens with us. Um, you know, we are a, a set of data, ultimately, a set of information in the form of consciousness, and we can mold that. Uh, it's, it's obviously a lot easier to mold something that is information than it is to mold something that's really hard and physical. And I think we're also finding that matter is becoming less hard and physical as time goes on in terms of, um, you know, the experiments that are done on the actual nature of it. So, um, yeah, you know, there's also some good evidence for the group consciousness effect. Uh, there's been some studies at the Para Research in Princeton and some other things, some other things that have shown, shown, shown um, a lot of start having the same intent, the same thing, it's even more powerful to make a change than uh, if it's just one person. Right. I think there was a, a, a study at Stanford University, or the Stanford Institute, rather, uh, where individuals were able to, simply by concentrating, were able to change the pH level of a container of water. Yeah, that's that's a great one. And so how would mainstream science explain that? They, they really can't. But in, a, in the digital consciousness world, what, are, what is the pH? You know, it's, um, it's ions of, of certain type, uh, more uh, than one other form of ion. And if our intent and our consciousness can actually mold, modify that reality, 
then it makes sense that we could have an influence on that. So there was another study, it was really interesting, uh, also done at Princeton, where uh, people noticed that they, during the commencement of Princeton University, on those two days, they, I think they had uh, some events always on those two days, that the weather was anomalously good. It was unusual that it almost never rained. And so if you looked at the statistical significance of sunny days versus uh, rainy days, on every other day in the summer, you had you know, a much higher incidence of rain than these two. And it's because everybody's like hoping for that, you know, wanting, wanting a perfect day for their, for their commencement. Um, so, and, and now is that a, you know, a slam dunk case? Well, every one of these experiments has error bars. Uh, it has uh, something called, um, you know, uh, chance, uh, well, what's the word, a chance due to uh, error. So what's the probability that um, this is actually due to chance? And you can calculate that. And so the error bar on that particular experiment was, I don't know, it was one in a couple hundred or something like that. So it's, it's possible that it was just a coincidence, but, you know, the, the likelihood is that it wasn't. You know, the likelihood is that, you know, people in a group consciousness way thinking the same thing along the lines of the other one that you mentioned um, can actually uh, manifest reality a little bit differently. Is this how group prayer works? Is this how faith healing works? I think so. Um, there's a lot of uh, success of Reiki and other things like that that uh, don't, again, they don't follow the normal uh, deterministic, materialistic kind of reality. Um, but there's, there is a consciousness there that is um, thinking positive thoughts, and that seems to have an effect it, to the point where uh, a lot of hospitals allow Reiki and those kinds of things um, into the uh, into the hospitals now, even though they don't fully understand why it works. The fact that it does work is enough uh, for, for it to be worthwhile. Well, is everything in reality a waveform that can be either created or, or, or collapsed? Uh, yeah, I guess it depends on what you mean, mean by waveform. So um, I, I have... You know, heard a lot about, uh, uh, you know, frequencies and, uh, you know, oscillations and vibrations and things like that. And everything ultimately is motion. So, uh, you know, the atoms in our body vibrate. The, the deeper fabric of reality is probably reality cells that are flipping back and forth at some frequency. So there, there does some, seem to be, you know, something to that. Um, the idea of collapsing a, a waveform means something is going from just being probable to being actual, you know, um, actually experienced. And that, for sure, has been uh, proven to happen in uh, a lot of the, the quantum experiments. Well, didn't Einstein say that all matter is just energy that has slowed to an imperceptible rate? Um, I'm not sure about that one, um, but it does. it sounds like something he might say. I mean, there are some great physicists that, you know, you think about the things they say, they match this, uh, what we've been talking about tonight. So uh, Einstein once said, reality is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. <laughs> it was Einstein that said that. You know, Max Planck, you know, father of quantum mechanics, said, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. 
And one of my favorites, uh, Werner Heisenberg, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, yes. another quantum physicist, uh, famous. He said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will make you an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Ah, that's and I, I love that because the deeper we look, the deeper we find purpose, and the more likely we find purpose. And the, the deeper we look, the more we seem to be connected, and the more we, there seems to be a, uh, you know, a bigger entity or a bigger purpose to all of this reality. And, is, and some people will call that God. I call it all that there is. Um, it's just semantics again. When did it begin? Uh, I mean, was there was there ever a time we weren't living in a in a simulation? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, is that that's knowable? a great one. Um, there, there is this concept that uh, you can Google. It's kind of fun. Uh, called last Thursdayism. Yeah, you know, the idea that the reality came into being last Thursday, and of course it's somewhat humorous and kind of arbitrary. But if you think about it, what do we know? You know, what do we really know from the past? We infer the past through the artifacts in our reality. Evolution, fossils, uh, looking backwards in time and the Big Bang Theory, things like that. We're just taking data that we're experiencing in the current reality and inferring what happened in the past. We don't know for sure. What if those artifacts were just placed there you know, just the same way that um, in a computer game, when you just start the game, when you boot it up, there are artifacts that are just already in the game. Um, we have no way of knowing which, which was the case. But, you know, I do tend to think that everything that we uh, perceive as ha- having happened in the past, the evolution of our reality, probably did happen, but it happened within the construct of this greater system. So it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, we, we created the system, we created the, and when I say we, um, the system created itself, um, created a virtual reality for us to, to experience, um, set up some rules, and uh, allowed uh, conscious entities to connect to it and interact with it and evolve. And as it's evolved over the time, if it's gone in a odd direction, you know, a correction has been made. You know, I think it's actually kind of interesting that a lot of the things that we thought were going to be apocalyptic never actually happened to be apocalyptic. People thought that the Industrial Revolution was going to lead to the, the end of humanity. Uh, people thought that um, population explosion was going to lead to the end of humanity. Nuclear technology leading to the end of humanity. Now people think uh, AI will or nanotech will. And just never seems to happen. Why do you suppose that is? Uh, it, you, know, you know, that's kind of a philosophical question. Maybe deep down the system has to maintain some balance so that it can continue. Maybe that's it's got really good why. adware, really good adware protecting, yeah, exactly. protecting the simulation. <laughs> let, me, let me work Paul in here from Oshawa quickly. Paul, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. A quick question, please. Good morning, uh, Richard. Thanks for taking the call, and good morning, Jim. Uh, Jim, Hi, I'm Paul. just curious uh, what you're saying. I... I do understand uh, the line you're saying, uh, and my question is, with today with our technology and microwaves and other technologies exotic like CERN, could it be uh, enhancing uh, consciousness, or could it uh, be corrupting it? Good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think consciousness is, uh, is deeper than that. You know, we, we, we're playing out uh, things that we want to do. We have the free will to explore. Um, I think that 
all the exploration that we do is probably evolving our consciousness uh, at the end of the day. Is there a downside to it? Sure. Um, you know, each one of these things we have to take into account as, uh, you know, the risk factors and so forth. But I think the more we probe into the nature of reality, uh, the more we learn, and the more we learn, the more we evolve our consciousness. So to me, in general, it's an enhancement. And I think if you look over the years at things like, uh, you know, murder rates or, you know, some other things that could be attributes of the sort of nature of society, it has slowly gotten better. Um, as much as we feel like, oh, we're living in this, you know, this, this uh, frightening age, um, it's a bigger picture it does seem to be improving, which, you know, again, feels like evidence that there's a, you know, a fundamental uh, rule of continuous improvement going on. That's true. I mean, we're, we're reducing abject poverty uh, at light speed. I mean, it's just incredible if you see what, what's happening there. Uh, Paul, we thank are, you for that. Yeah. yeah. There, uh, there's a, there's a, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, it, we don't have time to get into this, but it seems like we're overlaying another element of sort of a digital reality with, and we've talked about this before, about, uh, um, you know, you look at, for example, John Madden's NFL football, the video games, where, where we're creating a virtual reality uh, that's sort of overlaying this digital simulation that we're living in. Uh, but virtual reality, I mean, that's not the same as a digital simulation, is it? Right, and the I, I do create uh, in in the book a sort of concentric circles of reality. Um, so I think that um, all that there is is sort of uh, the outer circle, and you can put it inner circle or outer circle; it doesn't matter. It's just it's arbitrary. But you know, if if you believe that the further out you're going in these concentric circles, that that's the, the truer nature, then as you go in, like at, a, at, a, at the next level, things like our waking virtual reality um, now exist, or dreams, or out-of-body experiences. And then the dreams within dreams, or the, or the virtual reality simulations that we run, or the fantasies that we have, are yet another level, uh, you know, removed from that. So, you know, you can have dreams within dreams, within dreams. You can have virtual realities within dreams, within dreams, all those kind of things. Each time you do that, you're moving one level away from the truer reality. The truer reality is all there is. It's what we experience in between lives. And it's what we get a glimpse of uh, during a near-death experience. But it's not what we're living in today. Because well, what we live in today is the virtual reality. And this is all there is because we are out of time. Jim, always a okay. pleasure. Digital consciousness available everywhere. Good talking to you again. Great. Thank you very much, Richard. Great show. My pleasure. All right. My thanks to Albert, Ryan, and Ian. Back next week, we'll talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Copper Scroll, a map that leads to the treasures of Solomon's Temple, perhaps. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the host tops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs> 